0: Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Collaboration between the architect and the developer is critical to the success of any project. We sat down with Daniel Hajar, Managing Principal at HOK, and Nick Searle, Partner at Argent and Argent Related, to ask how you get the relationship right and how we can better innovate and take risks together in the face of great unknowns, including the climate crisis.
1: My name's Nick Searle, and I'm a partner at Argent
2: and Argent-related developer. My name's Daniel Hadjar, and I'm the managing principal of HOK Studio uh, in Europe and the Middle East.
0: So I think the best place to start is with, um, you held a competition together, so why, why did you do that? Where did that come from?
1: Uh, the, 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 competition is actually run by Arkyboo. Um So I won't answer for Daniel, but, um, I was invited to participate, um, uh, and be on the panel. It's the second time I've done it. Um, and it's, uh, a fantastic format for young, generally younger, smaller practices to come in and showcase, um, their ideas. Uh, And the format, I think, is interesting because it gives them a very limited period of time to try to get across quite significant messages. Um, I just, you know, I I personally support it because um, I think particularly some of the smaller practices like that need an opportunity other than just the marketplace to be able to come and showcase what they're doing and be given some proper airtime.
0: And the pitch is really important. Is the pitch still important in terms of the Uh, developer architecture? So,
1: so, um, you'll get me on my hobby horse now. The pitch is the most important bit in many ways. Um, One of the things that I think architectural education lacks is a focus on communication and how you get your messages and ideas across. Uh, You know, there's a lot of very, very, very talented architects um, in this city And some of them do really, really well, and some of them don't. Um, And there are many reasons for that. But one of the reasons in there is that some of the people who do very well are just great communicators. They're people who are able to go out and sell their ideas. Uh, They're people who are able to um, work well with the press. They're people who are able to work well with a client in a meeting and and take a a room with them on on a particular journey. Um, And that actually is... Hugely impressive and hugely confidence-building as a client developer, because you know you want someone like that who can carry a planning committee or other kinds of relationships. So actually, that ability um, and that, pers- that put those personal abilities and qualities are actually very, very important. And I think although architects go through the crits process as part of their education, I, I went through it myself. It's quite a challenging and sometimes quite a negative process, I feel. And actually, I think there should be more focus on helping architects coming out with their communication skills and putting a positive spin on that whole uh, set of abilities. And I I just don't feel that that's focused enough on, really. I, I just think there needs to be a lot more effort in that.
0: Because as a critic, you're presenting all of the time, but then yeah. there is the archibabble and the mumbo jumbo. And
1: well, there's this. Firstly, there's language. Okay, um, I, I'm allowed to say this because I, I qualified as an architect. Architects are absolutely in their comfort zone when they're talking to other architects. Okay, they become very quickly out of their comfort zone where they're challenged on other levels. So that another part of, of the education where I would challenge is to actually for them to understand a little bit more about what is driving the person on the other side of the table when they're presenting to clients. And there is no one client, everybody's different, but there are certain fundamentals about what's driving a a positive client relationship. And the design and your building is one part of that, but there are lots of other aspects to it. And I think the the more that people are, you can teach to a certain degree, but also, I think there's got to be just, an, uh, as in any client-consultant type relationship, you have to understand what the person on the other side wants. And often, an architect is turning up with their own agenda based upon what they are trying to get out of it. And actually, if they were to rewind and focus more on the person on the other side of the table, and their the nature of that organisation, nature of those people, what they're trying to achieve, I think people would... Possibly be more successful than they are sometimes.
0: Do you think architects understand or are educated enough about the business model of development?
1: No. No. Very very few have the first notion of what is involved to actually get to the point where you can build a building. And I and I say that as somebody who came from being an architect and a project manager, and then then sort of nearly twenty years ago started working as a developer. Um, you realise that actually there's there's two years of pain before you can get to designing the building. Um, So no, I I don't think it's very well understood. The classic always is um, people design buildings and they come to the ground floor and there's this huge space that's left over and somebody writes, writes the word retail on it and absolutely no idea about what actually works and what doesn't work. And it's the most frustrating thing for me that huge thought will go into, you know, where the, where the door goes on that apartment down there. But as soon as you get to this bit, which is the only bit that the public are ever going to experience, they're never going to experience that. They're going to experience that. There's, there's almost zero thought and zero understanding as to what actually the occupier and the public who are going to use it actually need.
0: Aren't they saying, oh, it's flexible, adaptable space. Yeah, but
1: that's an excuse for not thinking about it. That's 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 always the answer to, you know, how do we how do we create something for the future or make it flexible and adaptable? Well, yeah, okay, that's fine. We can just sign a load of big boxes, but that doesn't work either. Because so all that does is acknowledge that we just kind of nobody knows what the hell's going on.
0: <laughs> so they understand the principle of an activated ground floor and they understand you've got to buy the land for less than you know, the price of what you develop
1: on it. I, I but Fundamentally, but, but then, it's very rare that we have that conversation, to be fair. We, we don't, often don't engage at that level. So, you know, as as developer clients, we are guilty of not communicating that, actually, because we've usually kind of sorted that bit out by the time we... Could
0: the investment yeah. conversation and how... Yeah, the, I that mean,
1: sometimes, is- I mean, we have, um, there are some uh, architects relationships that we have. Quite often, actually, they're with small, quite small single-person practices, where you've got an individual who... I've just spent some time this morning, actually, with a, a guy who's a, he's a friend of mine, actually. He's an architect, but he also does his own private developments. And he understands. He, he actually understands. So if I need something done really quickly and with a kind of a commercial head-on, I know that he can turn me something around in a week And he'll come in and go we've done this because of this and if you do it that way it's going to be more viable than if you do it that way and it's just like okay yeah i see that so but if i generally (laughs) and 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 hopefully dan's going to correct me in in a second but if i go to the larger practices i i don't very often have that conversation
0: about viability
1: not not in the same way no it's 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 more design focused do you
0: want to come in and defend the the profession. The practice. <laughs> the
2: practice. <laughs> no, absolutely, and, and you know, I think a lot of the things that Nick has said are 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 true about the profession. Um, you know, when you look at the profession, you are really being hired to solve a problem for someone. You're really being engaged to solve a problem for someone, and in order to be engaged, you need the chemistry and the trust between the two parties that. Going back to to Nick's point, you know, there isn't an ulterior motive or there isn't, there's a genuine uh, notion or ability that you want to do the best job that you can, given the circumstances that you're faced with. And that might be a budget issue, it might be a land issue, it might be a planning issue, but the job of the architect is really to be the maestro behind that and pull it all together. With the developer, I think... Certainly, when I went through my education, you know, the developer was the dark person sitting in the corner, and he, you know, that was sort of the dark side of the of the profession. I think in the last ten to fifteen years, maybe even twenty years, you've seen a lot of architects go into development, and they were notoriously bad at doing development uh, because they didn't understand uh, what it took to do development and the risks that it took to do development. And taking a calculated risk is, that's a significant step in any building process. And taking a calculated risk and producing great public realm and producing great architecture is a leap of faith for someone to take with a partner. is the way that we certainly look at our practice. Uh, We do not go in with any preconceived ideas. We do not say, this is the best thing for you, nobody needs to hear a lecture, uh, etc. So we do engage very much with our clients as opposed to uh, coming in with a preconceived idea or or a notion of what something should be. Uh, Because chances are, it won't be uh, that preconceived idea because there are so many influences on development in this day and age that it's very difficult to say it's one thing or another. I think the other thing that we have a responsibility jointly between developers and architects is the whole notion that we are custodians of the environment. And if we're not going to produce the best work for the environment, I'm not sure who will. It won't be the government. It won't be uh, third parties, it it will have to be this union of uh, the design profession and the development uh, industry or profession um, that really come together. And if they can't come together, it's going to be pretty difficult to try and marry sort of the common good, if you will, going forward.
0: Do you think there's an appreciation uh, from developers and I know you used to be an architect but do you think there's an appreciation of that question of liability that architects carry? carry? I think
2: you know no matter what you do in this day and age there's an issue of liability Um, I think the whole notion of liability and there's several levels obviously of liability that uh, we don't need to get into certainly for this discussion but we are professionals, we are responsible for what we do. And perhaps, and arguably maybe more than other professions, we do have a duty to the public in order to produce safe buildings, in order to produce safe public spaces, in order to produce uh, a product, if you will, that is in the public interest. And I think if we don't do that, uh, I think to a certain degree we've failed as a profession if we don't do that. Um, and that's not saying that everything has to be, you know, safe and it has to be, I, I mean safe in terms of design or, or not being, you know, a, a, a very prolific, if you will, uh, proponent of design work. Because that's why we enter the profession is to do great work. Um, and if you've got a development partner who is also focused on doing great work, generally you do. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll now defend
1: the, the architectural profession because I think they have a really, really tough job in the sense that every time they sit down with a client on the other side of the room, going back to my earlier point, you've got to figure out who your client is on the other side because they're not all the same at all. So you have professional developer clients where there are people sitting on the other side who do this every day, who, for whom you know they are engaged in that, that social pursuit as well as the pursuit of making profits for shareholders and all the rest of it. And then you have a lot of much smaller organisations or organisations for whom perhaps buildings are a bit more of a commodity. Um, and actually that's a completely different set of conversations that the architects got to ha- now have. And actually trying to drive through the kind of agenda that you've just been talking through about there is going to be much tougher um, and perhaps not received so well. So I think y- being able to, you know, we, we as a development uh, and, and property company um, community we have a responsibility because we're the ones who are going to actually brief. We're the ones who are going to direct. We're paying the bills. So we, we, are, we, we are going to create the expectations ourselves. And there is no doubt that developers in the UK have a generally poor reputation for a reason. We haven't done the right thing as a, as a whole a lot of the time. And I, you know, I sometimes sit and we have you know, panel debates and the rest of it, and there's a set of five or six developers sitting around the table and we're all fiercely saying that we do the right thing. Which, And of course, you're talking to the five or six large developers that everybody knows who kind of, that's what we do. But actually, that's not actually representative of the majority of the industry across the UK, which is actually often much smaller, much more financially driven well sorry that's not fair we, we're all financially driven to one degree or another but perhaps they're not looking at it in the, with the same perspective as, as we are uh, where we have this very long-term view of um, uh, things.
0: And sometimes that has to do with your your investment picture right Because
1: yeah there's a million things that can be impacting. If you are invested by
0: pension funds you're gonna have a much longer view yeah. because your investor has a much longer and,
1: view. And this is where I think um, actually the whole Agenda around social responsibility, around environmental responsibility needs to be driven harder right the way through the whole development community because it's only when there is deemed to be value in that that you start to get different behaviours being generated.
0: Well, there's, there's a few approaches, right? You can go the kind of affordable housing section 106, you know, top down you must yeah. approach, which is policy. Yeah. Uh, and then you can go the it'd be nice if you would, which we've been doing for some time. Yeah. And there's a great growing frustration that that hasn't really realized a low carbon. I mean, we've had passive house kicking around as a concept for a long time. Yeah. We've had prefabrication kicking around, yeah. you know, different levels of of, of um, material, CLT's been around a long time. Um, so, uh, you know, w- w- what, what do you go for? Do you go for top-down, well, bottom-up?
1: I, I, I mean, it's interesting that I, I think there's a time and a place for each of those things. But actually, I think, you know, I've been involved now for 30 years in, in the industry. And fundamentally, the way we design and build buildings, apart from the fact that technology has allowed us to make different shapes that we couldn't have made before, it hasn't really changed that much. No. Still putting concrete foundations in, concrete cores, steel or concrete frames, and then we're covering it in glass, or or, or some kind of masonry. You know, it's, it hasn't fundamentally changed in there. But I do sense a shift. That is starting to happen. I I sense something more fundamental going on, not just in our industry, but more broadly. And I think that's the point. There is a kind of societal awareness and a societal shift that I think is going to start impacting us. I mean, at the moment, you know, we you know this, the circular economy is now a term that. Um, has only just starting to actually influence the lexicon of language in, in, in our industry. I mean, you still talk to most people in industry and they'll look at you like, sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, but in, within that, at the moment, the industry, okay, 50% of all materials used in the UK are in construction, 60% of all waste generated in the UK is from construction. Okay, these are massive figures. Okay, and I think as people are becoming more aware just generally of this, I think we as an industry, and I think people are going to start becoming aware of those kind of statistics. Everybody's, you know, focusing on, you know, boohoo and their, their you know, clothes, are throwaway clothes and these kinds of things. Actually, it's it's not the same impacts as as, as the construction industry is having. So one of the wonderful things about the the process, the Arquibig process actually, was that three, four of those pitches were all about how you create demountable buildings. And it wasn't, yes they were mostly timber and other things actually, but we'll, we'll come back to timber in a minute, but it was about the reuse it was about how you build something and you reuse it, which is kind of ultimately where the circular economy takes you. Can you create a building in components that you can build and then take it all apart and, do it and put more back together again? And, and, and I think that it does feel for the first time that there is a, a shift. You know, all our discussions previously around um, environmental performance of buildings, all the way through the early days of us developing King's Cross, everything was about buildings in operation it's actually a tiny percentage of the carbon of a building. If you look at it over 50 years, the majority is embodied carbon in what you built. Mm-hmm. So we, we're all starting from the wrong place you know, in, the, in the first instance. So, and, and, I, and, I, and I sense there is a shift now. I'm getting involved in conversations that weren't happening two years ago. Something's
2: changing.
0: So why do you think that the design hasn't really changed in the last 30 years, how we build buildings?
2: You know, i've always told everyone the romans had concrete and yet you look at it and we're still putting concrete together the way the romans did it um i just want to go back to one point if i may uh that that nick nick raised one of the interesting things that is happening in the in the profession certainly within our profession is who are the real clients behind developments and what are their motives obviously everybody you know and let's be upfront about it profit is not a dirty word it is something that people do in business in order to invest and further develop themselves uh, without profit you can't do that um, but it's quite interesting to see now that a lot of either the hedge funds or the big private equity funds are now becoming more and more the client as opposed to being in the background in funding uh, that they would have a piece of a development, et cetera. Now, that still exists, but we're certainly seeing that landscape changing as well, which is sort of an interesting dynamic. Is uh, that
0: because of them being engaged in kind of long-term renting schemes where they're kind of more engaged over a longer period of time? Or I that- think
2: I think they've reached a certain size where they're saying we'll uh-huh. do it ourselves as opposed to getting into a partnership with somebody. They will invest, if it's a pension fund, they're going to invest in particular developments as opposed to running a development company themselves so to speak. But I think the dynamic is definitely changing and going forward I think that might actually increase because they do have funds at their disposal, they do have the ability to invest and look either on a short-term position or a long-term position depending on what the development what the development is. I think going back to the the discussion in terms of how the industry is changing um, everyone perhaps either chooses to forget or forgets that the uk in the 60s and in probably into the 70s prefab was a big industry here now whether it was done well or not is another discussion point but it was an industry that everyone looked at the ability to use in order to solve, generally, a social issue. And that was primarily housing at the time, particularly post-World War II. But when you had a lot of the architects that came through in the 60s, they were looking at systems building, they were looking at ways to prefab buildings, etc. Some of them didn't particularly uh, pull it off all that well. But I think people are really going back to some of those fundamental tenets because they are looking at it almost like an industrial process in terms of the automobile industry, for instance. You know, you prototype something seven years in advance of actually going into production with a car. And I think the building industry has been notoriously late in adapting some of those uh, processes. And I'm not saying that it's a one-size-fits-all process, but I don't think the manufacturing industry has been set up particularly well to address the construction industry or the development industry. And I think that will definitely change because particularly in urban situations uh, and perhaps remote situations or less urban situations where you don't necessarily have the either the land to stage a project or you don't necessarily have the facilities locally in order to build a project. So
0: Another thing I've been hearing about is because we do have lots of modular elements in our mm-hmm. buildings, right? We've got kind of standard sized office doors and, and dividers and mm-hmm. windows and cladding, mm-hmm. you know, and systems that do come apart. But actually, if you're going to and we do kind of, you know, we do take and sell off bits of buildings when we take them down. Right. So you might do the marble or whatever it is, but actually that we do have the ability to reuse and to be circular with a lot more of these things. And there's a Belgian organization, which I have to send you the name afterwards because I've forgotten it, who actually go and will uh, take the tower parts and store them. And one of the things they said the big issue is, is where do you put it? So they will, ha- they will do an entire tower of windows so that you can do another tower using these windows or using the partitions or yeah. the doors that are still good. But the thing that is actually um, a challenge for other people who want to engage is this, is that actually where do you put them for the 20 years or yeah. 10 years or seven years or even three years that you're developing? And will
2: it still be applicable when you actually go to build that particular building? Um, what they found was because all lot, materials have got a shelf life yes ultimately. what they found
0: was a lot of them were because because they were but they were always looking for particular they go to scope the building before demolition so i think they were saying a lot of the the office towers are particularly well served because you have a lot of one kind of window mm-hmm. you have a lot yeah. of one kind of door
1: i mean one, one of the interesting we, we did a, a workshop with the gla about two months ago using one of our large projects as a sort of case study to kind of develop their thinking and their policies around the circular economy because they, they want to bring it forward as, as um, I don't know if it's going to be brought forward as regulation or recommendation or quite what they're going to do with it yet, yeah. but they certainly want to start bringing it into the way that they govern the processes of, of construction. And there was one part of the conversation which just struck me as just so simply logical. Um, I don't know quite how you would apply it literally, but logical. And that was that if you if you think about ownership of of, a, of an object, a light bulb was kind of what we were talking about. And if you, I go and buy a light bulb from the person who makes the light bulb, it's kind of in the interest of the person that's selling the light bulb to me. That the light bulb doesn't last too long because they want to send me another one. However, if... I was leasing that light bulb from that person it 's actually in that per- and I was going to use it for two years and then give it back, and then they were going to refurbish it and give it to somebody else it 's actually in their interest to make it so it lasts forever because it 's an income producing asset it 's like the difference between a building a building that you 're going to sell and don 't care about and a building that you 're going to own forever and generate an income from. You build it differently, you think about it differently because you've got to look after it it's this is your nest egg now. You know, you want it to work for a long time. You don't want to have to keep paying to maintain it. You, so you build it really well to last. Of, so, so this whole idea, if you then apply that to a building and say, what if you leased all the materials in a building? What if you leased the bit of steel? And then you gave it back to the person that you leased it from after 30 years. And then they use it for something else. Now, of course, when you think about the normal buildings that we produce, we, they're all so bespoke that that doesn't really work, because everything's really bespoke. So it drives you down a system-building kind of solution, which everybody goes, oh, that's going to be boring, but this doesn't have to be a blanket application, and, not necess- and a modular building doesn't always have to be boring either. But there is something, just as a, as a principle, about the way we look at how we procure, who owns what, and what our attitude is towards the long life of not just the building, but all the individual components within a building, and I think there's something in that. Um, certainly, when it comes to things like this, you can. Why can't that just be leased? Yeah. Well, the things are the same height, you know, wherever you go. So, and then someone has it back rather than smashing it up and starting again.
2: You think about it differently, and
1: I think there's 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 something worth
2: pursuing. In there's that thought there's a number of the, there's a number of the carpet companies now that that's all they do. They literally lease the carpet to you. When it's worn out or when you don't want it anymore, you call them, they'll come and pick it up and then it's completely recycled into a new carpet. And I think a lot of those industries, um, I think, make a lot of sense going into the future because, you know, to produce a brick, it requires a gallon of gasoline just in terms of energy. And to recycle a brick, obviously then you're not reusing or basically spilling a, a gallon of gasoline into the environment. Um, so I do think there's, a, there's an economic case to be made. I don't know whether the, the development industry or the construction industry for that matter are at that level, but they will get there because ultimately if you build an asset and you're keeping it for yourself or even if you want to sell it on you want it to be of a certain quality that people say you know it's the reason why we buy certain products you buy a certain product because you say this will last me x number of years as opposed to x number of months and i think when you begin looking at the year equation you begin looking at things completely different. and and I completely agree with with Nick, the whole notion, the automobile industry is a perfect example of that. BMW, or a lot of the the more advanced car makers, so to speak, are basically buying back their cars and reusing them and repurposing them. On a consumer level, if you buy a coffee capsule from a particular company, they will actually take it back in their recycling because it has, and I'll say it in the British way, it has aluminium in the, in the capsule and they recycle that and they reuse it as opposed to every time there's a new process to produce this product that they use in huge amounts. So I do think that that makes a lot of sense. How it will be configured economically or, or financially I think is going to be the challenge.
0: What do you think is holding back innovation in in methods of construction when we look at kind of large-scale urban redevelopment because we know that steel is incredibly Mm -hmm. carbon the worst Mm -hmm. in terms of 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 carbon in terms of material material specification in general we've got a few of these um, bad ideas we know that timber is locks in carbon Mm -hmm. Um, we've known these things for a long time but we are as you said kind of building things roughly the same way so what is the blocker is it building regulations is it habit Is it the money and the developer?
2: I think think it's probably a combination of all of them. I think the building regulations have not kept up to new ways of building per se. Um, They'll get there, but unfortunately, it usually takes either a crisis or an unfortunate event that will happen in order to change regulation.
0: Which doesn't leave me much hope in a climate emergency because climate emergencies, by their nature, are unpredictable in time scale. Mm -hmm. Um, And and by the time you are reaching its effects, you're already 10 years, 20 years behind.
2: I think think when, when, when an industry has sort of gotten used to sort of business as usual, It's hard to shift an entire industry around overnight. Um, And I think there's an element that why should I be the first to try this out? Uh, Or, you know, what happens if this doesn't work? Uh, When I know over here, you know, A plus B equals C, I'm not sure A plus B equals C over with this equation. It might equal D, and I'm not prepared to go to D. And I just, I just think it's a matter of evolution that that will happen. But it, it, it takes time. It really does because there's a whole supply chain that has been set up on the A plus B equals C equation.
0: Do you think there's an, I mean, we talk about collaboration being important, that conversation and openness being important between developers and architects. Do you think that the sharing of risk and liability is necessary to that because that idea that you know the developer carries the risk and the architect carries the liability can create a lot of adversarial tension that could prevent innovation.
2: I, would I think, think. I think there's one component in that equation that is fundamentally missing, and that's the contractor. Uh, and you know architects, in terms of their contractual relationships, have got a very bizarre relationship, because they have no contractual relationship generally with the contractor. They do with the developer, and they're basically hired by the developer to oversee, if you take a traditional model, uh, to oversee the contractor's work. Um, I think.
0: But they might be employed directly by And they
2: can be employed directly by the contractor, depending on how the method of procurement was was put to market. I really believe that the whole notion of how we deliver projects has got to change. Right from the very outset of planning permissions, right through to the bricks and mortar on site for lack of a better description. Um, Because if we don't do that, it will end up defaulting to business as usual. And I think that's fundamentally wrong going forward. We, we, we <clears throat> Just to add to that, I think there is a fundamental problem
1: around skill shortage. I don't think the industry is attracting enough good people into it these days. I think what I've witnessed in my 30-odd years is when I, when I started the process, most contractors were actually builders. They were, they were people who built the thing and they employed people who built things. And then what happened was they started to increasingly become management companies and they put the best people who were on the site being the builders into management positions. So you now had these people who are in management positions who actually understood buildings. They've now all retired and you've now got a whole series of people who are in management positions who've never really been on building sites. They don't really know how to build things. And I'm, I am really concerned that we now have a situation where not only are we struggling with skills to build the things that we know how to build, but we're really gonna be caught short when we start to try to move into new areas of building. And perhaps actually it's that crisis that's actually gonna drive us down another route where we actually cut out the need for quite so much site-based expertise. And and that is when the timber buildings actually start to come in and and, and they start to come into their own, because you can put up whole timber buildings with five or six people on site. If you've you've pre-manufactured, you can do it with a very, very, very small workforce. And that actually cuts out an awful lot of risk. You need a small group of people who are just very skilled in that particular area. And... I, I think there is there's real opportunity in there. There's a whole load of technical issues around how you build certain buildings um out of timber. There's also regulatory issues, quite rightly, that need to be very, very carefully thought through. There's a perception issue, which is um a- again something that needs to be hit on head on and, and people need to understand the realities of what it means to build out of timber. But when you know that, you know, in Austria alone, one cubic meter of timber that's suitable for constructing buildings is grown every single second. There's a proper, sustainable source of materials to build buildings. It's like staring in front of us. And for generations before the Industrial Revolution, that's what we built all our buildings out of. Now, yes, London did burn down and all those kinds of things. So, you know, you know, and, and it has to be done in, in, in the right way. And we need to think very, very carefully. And we've spent quite a bit of time. But I am currently aware of three large developers in London who are all looking at various versions of building office buildings out of timber. And I, even 12 months ago, I don't think that would have been happening.
0: What's driving that? Is it the public's awareness? Is it the planner's awareness? Or Is it the developer's awareness?
1: I think there is. So this is where economic economic opportunity is driven by wider social perception okay and that is all of those organizations and i include ourselves in that actually can see a potential commercial advantage in actually getting to market with a with a timber office building okay because so many organizations now want to be able to demonstrate a certain set of fundamental values to their customers and to their staff and that if they were to occupy that kind of building that is an incredibly tangible and visible manifestation of, of that. So I think there's a lot of... So, so, so the thing is that the, the good behaviours are actually driven much further down the line by the customers and employees of our customers. It's that wider societal change and shift that will is going to quite quickly drive through to the way that we behave, because if we can see, and I, when I say we, I'm talking about the development industry. Okay, as soon as it sees opportunity and marketability. You're in a very, very tough market out there, trying to sell your buildings, trying to rent your buildings, the rest of it. You are in a very tough, competitive environment. So everybody's looking for competitive advantage. And it's starting to be seen that your credentials, your environmental credentials, your embodied carbon credentials, and the visible manifestation of that is actually could give you a commercial advantage. That's a good thing. So it's all being driven by profit, but it's driving good behaviours. and That's a societal shift that's going on.
0: What about the build nothing perception, the reuse, which is always in there? Is there an awareness of, you know, an anti-demolition, a kind of uh, an idea of leaving the carbon in the building?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that.
0: I mean, you really, a, I'm, not, I'm not
1: sure that there's a societal appreciation of that aspect.
0: Still like it a bit new.
1: I, th- I, th- I think, I mean, let's put it this way. Many of our customers of our customers love the reuse of old buildings. Now, I'm not sure they're particularly driven by an environmental reuse idea. They're driven by the fact that they love old buildings, you know, and so for, for ages, we know loads of developers have been going to architects. Can you design me an old building? because I know I could lease it tomorrow. It's like, well, hmm, how do you design an old building? But people are out there trying to get the qualities of an old building. Now, What is it that makes people love that old brick, arch, and all the rest of it? And trying to recreate it is kind of nirvana. And of course, nobody can, because it's horribly pastiche instantly. Um, So so there's, 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 there's kind of, you know, we're constantly responding to what that wider audience views as good because we know that has value as, a, as an industry and as a sector. We know that has value because ultimately people are going to inhabit our places. And if people want to be in them, the businesses that employ them will want to lease them or buy them or whatever it, whatever it is. And, and this is where I go back to just that. I just sense there is a wider debate, a wider meaningful debate going on in society that is starting to influence our behaviours.
0: I mean, we're near, Derwin's kind of done quite a lot of development in this area, Mm -hmm. reusing frames, usually, not always the whole building wholesale. Um, But that was never really environmental. That was commercially driven, from my understanding, in their kind of early years. It just made more sense to retain it if you could. Um, Sure.
2: And and frankly, if it works for the purpose that you need it to to work for, absolutely. Um, I think... I just want to go back to a point that that Nick was was making. The whole notion of, you know, why do people have an affinity with either an older structure that's been repurposed or uh, an older structure that's been restored or what have you. I think there's an element that people love the story behind an old building and stories are generally what our communities rely on to talk about themselves. And I think when you have the ability to tell a story about a project or about a building that had a former life and now it's been repurposed, I think that's a pretty special thing for the community and the community as a whole. So it sort of gets taken on as the child of the community, if you will. And I think that's what a lot of the pushback from the 1970s and 60s development was, there was no story other than an architectural idiom.
0: But actually, they're loved now. It happened, right? They're loved because
2: of the size of the spaces. Yeah,
0: I think also, you know, brutalism became really, you know, very... uh, I mean, how much of it is just time? Because in time, buildings become the city. And I mean, you don't say to a kid, why are you holding that old scruffy teddy bear, right? I'll give you a new one. No, I love that teddy bear. It's mine, right? And I think that's what happened with brutalism, right? You've had these mm. these buildings around, and mm. they they become yours as a citizen. Yes. You know, they 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 belong to you. And yeah. then it's don't take my building away. I know you say it's unprofitable. And no one wants to actually be in it, but it's mine, yeah. right? So yeah. I think how much do you think there is uh, in development? And this is kind of an an abstract question in a way, but it, you know, it strikes me we have a very colonial view of the city right we regenerate things presumably they're degenerate we, we make things better we civilize we civilize places through development mm-hmm. how much is that a, um, a detrimental way of of considering cities
2: i'll i'll let nick speak to that one thanks given <laughs> given king's <laughs> cross <so. laughs> um
1: I'm, I'm never going to apologise for taking a piece of city that essentially was not open to the vast majority of its citizens um, and making it a safe place where people want to come and spend time. I think fundamentally that is a good thing to be doing with our cities. Um, at King's Cross, we, we, just, we, we had an opportunity with some... Quite extraordinary older buildings, um, which for best part of a hundred years weren't just not accessible to the people of London; they weren't actually in any real use because the, the the industrial revolution occurred. They were built and they were used for probably you know really actively for about thirty or forty years, and then they fell into disuse. Um, Great and parties, though. There were some great parties there, that, absolutely. So for the for, for the naught point naught naught one percent of the people who wanted to go to the party, it was great. And for everybody else, it was just an area you didn't go to because it was dangerous. So you know, there's there's uh, there's, there's always that argument. There's, there was always something fantastic there for somebody that is now not there. And I think we all, we all uh, appreciate and understand that. Um, and there's there's just balance in this whole thing. Uh, I you know I am constantly faced with the challenging question around gentrification and what that means for people. And I, I don't think I've ever had the perfect answer, and I don't think there is a perfect answer. There isn't a perfect answer to that that satisfies everybody's concerns. But I, I do feel, on balance, if we're making positive contributions for the wider community of cities, then that's got to be a good thing. I think there's much wider conversations around housing and affordability of housing, around affordability of, um, uh, of workspace and all those things. And, you know, how do we as developers control that? Because when we started the process there, we had no idea what was going to happen to an office rent or a, the price of a, an apartment. We had no idea. So it, it is, is, is what's being said to us, oh, well, when it goes up, you should not go up with it. You should just keep it at the level you were always at. Is that what we're supposed to do? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's what, what people mean by, by that. Because in some ways, there is a wider market of London that's going on that is shifting, and we're just part of London, and that's what's happening. So there is a there's a there's a challenge for London, um, and it's actually why we, as a developer now, are focused on in zones three and four, because for us, it's the place where we think we can actually go and do something that's meaningful, and we can actually create homes that actual people are going to want that we can sell, and people are going to want to live in. And we can create communities in, in those places. And actually, when we started at King's Cross, we might as well have been in Zone 4, because it certainly wasn't considered central London in 2009, I can assure you. Um, it was you know, people looking at us as if we were stock staring mad to even be conceiving of this. So the perception changes very, very quickly. Um, and, and the world moves on very, very fast.
0: Do you think developers are, are blamed or do you think their profits make them complicit in the erosion of the social safety net? I can't answer that.
1: I I don't think you can ask. This is is where I think government has a role to play in this. So I remember sitting in uh, a conversation for the members of the GLA and others a little while ago, several years ago, and putting my hand up and just saying, isn't the only way this ever gets really resolved is if you reintroduce council housing. To, to work on the basis that the private sector is responsible for resolving a housing crisis is kind of, I think, is, is government just not accepting its own responsibilities for its people. It's as simple as that. It is just handing that over and I don't think, I've never believed that that is the right approach to this at all. It's always going to be an economic argument that's going on and actually, we should just be in there building these, building the houses that are required for the people that require them. And that is a much larger societal issue than having a constant debate and sort of viability conversation with a whole array of differently-driven development organisations. And it just slows the entire process down and is an abdication of responsibility, is, is fundamentally how I see it. Um, so, I, I don't know that that quite answers your question. Well,
0: it's a question of tax, isn't it, I, I just, probably. it, it probably?
1: It probably is. Um, and I don't think that tax is solely on the people who are the developers. I mean, there are loads of other people in this town who are all taking advantage of the city and are having businesses that generate profits and all the rest of it. So if we wanna say, actually, we're gonna tax the businesses of London and take a little slice and then build a housing with it, fine. There's plenty of land out there. It's not like there's a shortage of land. You know, and if local authorities had that kind of funding and had that kind of drive, and were out there actually Either building on the land they've already got, because local authorities have got a lot of land, or acquiring bits to make it viable to, you know, putting that together, then, you know, there's there's a solution in there, but it needs big thinking. And you know, is 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 my view, and I just, you know, it's done borough by borough. Every borough is different. Every conversation with every developer is different, and uh, it's just not a route to. Any kind of resolution of that issue,
2: let alone a quick one. No, I, and, and you know, I completely agree with Nick on this. Uh, I think it is entirely unfair to expect the development community to resolve an issue that comes up in every single planning conversation, regardless if you're building an office building or if you're building. Uh, market housing it comes up every single time and if it comes up every single time it's not even getting answered every single time so there is it there has to be an answer to this situation because nobody will be successful if there's sole reliance on the private development sector and sole reliance on the government sector. There either has to be a different tax regime or a different pricing strategy on land or a different way to look at land in order to facilitate. If you want the private development companies to come in and do the housing because the government doesn't want to necessarily do it, then introduce a different business pro forma behind it and they'll take it on. I can guarantee you that they will take it on. But they're not going to take it on and be expected to walk on water. That's just, un- I just don't see how someone can do that going forward. I think I think a lot of uh, idealism is there. Uh, and yet, in terms of an actual delivery vehicle, one doesn't exist right now. I really don't believe it does, no matter how you look at it.
0: So I'm just going to bring it back to the competition that we haven't talked to for quite a long time because I think we've tackled all of the uh, major issues and <laughs> hopefully caught slightly closer to resolving some of them. Did you find hope in in these young architect pitches? Uh,
2: absolutely. I, you know, one of the reasons why we hosted the competition is it's probably the antithesis of what someone would expect a large firm to do we have had the good fortune of being successful globally Um, and i genuinely felt that this was a very small way to encourage those individuals who don't have access to the market the way that we might That don't have access to individuals such as Nick that we might and I think the whole notion of because you're big you can afford to be kind and I think that is a I'm not saying that in a patronizing manner either I I really believe that our industry is notoriously cruel on upstart companies and I think if we can do just our little bit in order to encourage them because the ideas and the the altruism and and the philosophy behind the competitors each one of them was engaging in their own way and to have that level of discourse in such a short period of time and in such a concentrated manner it's a pretty interesting and pretty great thing to be a supporter of I mean, I, so
1: I'll, I'll just tell you a little story. I, I was recently talking to a friend of mine who works for a medium sort of 25, 30-person architectural practice, and I-
0: That's pretty big for architecture.
1: Yeah, well, it, can't, it can't kind of is, yeah. And I, and I said to him, you know, I said, one of the trouble you architects is you spend all your other time talking to other architects. You know, you, you know, it's like, you need to get out there, and you know, that's not where you're gonna get your work, you're gonna get your work from there. And he said, well, Actually, Nick, you're wrong. I said, "What is that?" And he said, "Well, I reckon in the last twelve months, fifty percent of my work has come from recommendations by other architects." Okay, and actually, the architectural community, quite uniquely in my experience, is really good on that level. Um, Simon Alford of AHMM, you know, has, on numerous occasions that I'm aware of, recommended smaller practices that have grown out of his business. To take on roles that he has been approached on, because maybe they're too. I don't. I'm not sure if it's altruistic or they just haven't got capacity or whatever it is. But, both, the, but, but I think there's a bit of both. Um, but I think the, the 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 architectural industry is actually very good at that, and I think there should be more, much more encouragement of it. That. Uh, for for, for, for sort of larger and smaller organisations to create sort of informal frameworks of relationships whereby when you are approached on certain things or quite often you'll have big projects out of which small opportunities grow, yeah, you can go and find ABC sitting at the desk in the corner, or you could go to somebody, uh, an organisation who set up, for whom that is an opportunity that could transform their entire practice.
0: Would that ever happen as a developer? Someone says, "Do you want to develop a small site?" You say, "It's too small for us to be involved," but I know so and so would do it. Is that does that exist? Uh, yeah, it does
1: actually. Yeah, yeah, quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, you know, we, we will be approached on stuff and we'll say no, but we know X, Y, and Z, and you should speak to them. Um, so yeah, no, no, that, that that does happen. I mean, I just, you know, you see some of the, the opportunities, the smaller opportunities, and I think people like the Architecture Foundation, the London Festival of Architecture, those kinds of organisations are doing a fantastic job of promoting smaller practices and giving them profile. Archiboo is another one that tries to give them profile. And I think larger organisations can play a role in it too, and, you know, HOK did that fantastically here. It was a great audience. I mean, there must have been, what, 200 people in the audience, um, it, was a, it was a great event.
0: Is it a challenge to have um, sites that you can give to smaller practices as a developer, as a larger developer?
1: Um, that varies, um, so going back in Argent's history in about 1994, we gave a 200,000 square foot office building to some start-up organization called Allies and Morrison who were 10 people at the time. And we've worked with them ever since. We're still working with them today.
0: But they're uh, not 10 people anymore. They're
1: not 10 people anymore. But it gave them that, you know, we were friends. We knew them and the rest of it. Um, we've got a, a fairly well-known pink office building at King's Cross. And we wanted an office building that didn't feel like a traditional office building. So it was an office building and it was 150,000 square feet. And everybody knows who we talked to. I got to know Joe Morris sitting on a bike. And I spoke to David Partridge, our chief executive, who's also an architect by training. I said, so this Joe Morris guy, he um, he's never designed an office building. And he's only ever designed a building that's 50,000 square feet. This was six years ago, something like that. Uh, 50,000 square feet is the biggest office building. And I think we should, not have a competition. Or I think we should just give them the building. What do you think? And he kind of went, you yeah, alright. And And um, the rest of our project managers thought we were absolutely mad and didn't, didn't. Um, well, they, they told us off quite a lot for the next couple of years as, as we kind of went through an educational process. But we had enough in-house skill that we knew it wasn't going to go horribly wrong because we, we'd all... But we also knew that we actually, it was in our interests to not engage somebody who'd done it 20 times before because otherwise we were going to get the same answer and we'd get very well thought through normal office building that looked like all the other office buildings but we and we knew that with Joe we were going to get a somebody very creative who was going to think differently but just through almost the and sorry Joe I mean this in the nicest possible way the naivety was actually a kind of positive because they weren't constrained by the knowledge of having done it before and uh, that that was a positive thing. Now, you, you, can't, you can't do that every time. You're not gonna do it every time. You're gonna pick your moments. But equally, we have, on our bigger developments, we have opportunities where we can engage very, very small practices. Quasi-architecture meets artist kind of practices. To do, I mean, our, our, our pond is a great example of that, you know, um, where and some we, of we engage- the public
0: spaces as well We're quite small yeah, yeah. practices. Yeah,
1: really, really small practices that, that can come in and do things. And some of the temporary activities. And you know, I, I like to think we've given people opportunities to showcase what they do in some of that smaller scale, sometimes temporary, sometimes permanent um, uh, opportunities. And and you know, on the pr- jobs we're we're going to be working on now, we're going That's part of my ambition is that we will create opportunities to showcase some of those. And I think that's not again, it's, that is not altruistic. That's actually you discover a real talent. And you get real points of difference. And, and, and it's marketable. People want to come and see something that's fresh and new. I just saw the Anti Pavilion on Instagram overnight. I mean, it's a fantastic. I, I haven't actually figured out who designed that yet. Who, who designed the Anti Pavilion, do you know? I don't know, actually. No. I'm not, sure who, it, I'm not yeah. sure who it is, but I'm going to find out. But it's a really interesting, um, you know, that, that, there it is, you know, it's all over Instagram right now. You know, I suppose it's for a certain group of people who follow those <laughs> kinds of <laughs> those kind of people, but um,
0: the developers would it's, some developers would say it's too much of a risk. The architects of the small firms will say it's not a risk. If you can design one building, you can design any building. Who's right? Is it more of a risk to have a firm that hasn't done a building before? Do you have to work harder? And can a small firm design anything, or do they have to accept that actually there is a learning curve there?
1: So I think it it depends a little bit depends upon the nature of you as a developer. So. We, we are multiple people in our organization who have multiple experiences across the broad range of building types. We've built many, many things before. So I think we are able to take a risk in inverted commas because we have the skills in-house to kind of know when it's not right. I think for a a small private wealth fund or a small organisation of you know, an asset management team who are representing a, a big pension fund or something like that, who haven't got the in-house skills, they are going to go out and they've got to manage their risk. So they're going to be looking for somebody who knows what they're doing and can demonstrably prove they've done it before. OK, so it really is kind of horses for courses on that. It comes back to that, my earlier point is, there is no such thing as a typical client. And I, I so, so I think you're going to get some who are willing to do it because they see value in it and they, frankly, enjoy the process. That's probably us. And you'll get others who would just see that as way too risky because...
0: You've often worked with one architect to through to planning and then actually delivery with a different firm, I believe.
1: No, I mean, the, the way we've done a lot of it is where we... Um, we have uh, an architect who takes it up to the point where the contract is uh, 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 let and then we keep that architect on our side of the fence So we don't novate them. We ask them to continue working with us and we allow our contractor to then nominate their own, effectively their own executive architect to work up the details, etc. And we keep, so Allies Morrison on the building at King's Cross, they, they stayed with us on our side of the fence, but the detailing was now on a design and build contract um, where the, uh, there was an executive architect. Um, so it's a, it's a different kind of role.
0: Yeah, why do you, why do, you do that?
1: Uh, why do we do that? Um, it, I, uh, the first thing I would say is I think it, it is actually changing. I think what happened with Carillion has made everybody look at the world a little bit differently. Uh, the notion of the transfer of risk um, I think we worked on the basis for the majority of King's Cross that we took it to a certain point and then we gave responsibility to the contractor to deliver based upon a set of information. And what we didn't want to do was force or foister a particular architect upon them. In some cases the the, the contractor chose to take our architect as their executive and we've said that's fine but that's your choice so we're not going to force those, that organization are upon you. So it, it was about a design and build process. That's how it went. But we always wanted to have that organization who designed it on our side represent, representing us and making sure that we were getting the building and the quality which we had, rather than going across the other side where they now have a new master who's telling them what can and can't be done. So that was kind of the logic. And it, and it worked just fine, actually. Um, but yeah, you do realise when a big contractor goes down that the notion that you're transferring risk is frankly no more than a notion. So, what might you do instead? <laughs> <laughs> so, what might
0: you do instead?
1: I think we're, we're looking at all sorts of different alternatives about how we procure in the future, and we haven't got um, a singular answer to that process right now. But I think it will probably be um, slightly more textured in its approach. Um, I don't think we're going to end up doing full construction management um, but equally I don't think we're going to just sort of put the whole lot across a fence and just say there you go over to you Mr. Contractor and leave it to you. So I think there's probably some kind of hybrid between the two where we, um, where, the, where the right answer lies for us. And of course back to the same point again what is right for us won't be right for a bundle of other organisations. Um, it very much t- comes down to you as an organization, the skills you have in-house, and how you want to manage what you perceive as, as your development risks and your construction risks.
0: I have one last question for both of you. So what, what keeps you up at night in terms of risk? What's the big risk that keeps you up at night, future risk?
1: So I'm working on very our next very large development. Is that Tottenham? Uh, no, actually, at Brent Cross. Brent Cross. So it's 10 million square feet. And so it's bigger than King's Cross. And uh, the thing that keeps me up at night is how do I take a place that is currently has very little identity other than the, the existing shopping centre there? And how do I... It's, the risk for me is that I can't change perceptions of that place in the minds of not just Londoners, but the entire UK population. Um, And in order to make it a great success, I've got to shift people's view of what that place is. And we are working on numerous fronts to think about how we do that. But success and failure largely lies in our ability to do that. If 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 we don't succeed in that, we'll we'll build things and people will live there but it will never be the great success that i really really hope it can be
0: so whose hearts and minds do you need to win is it the the locals or is it
1: layered multi multi multi-layered yeah so absolutely local people
0: and Um, do they not love it is it not a teddy bear is there nothing lovable for them
1: uh there will be lots of great benefits Uh, as with all of these um big schemes like this they've taken it's taken an awful long long to get it off the ground. It's been 20 years in the making. Um, so there's been lots of promises that haven't come to fruition and long before we ever got involved. We got involved about three years ago. Um, so th- I think there's there's a bit of uh, local fatigue as a little local sort of like, please get on with it. Um, and of course, a lot of people are going to have to live with construction over a long period of time. And that is, you know, not that's 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 tough, and, and we you know it's our responsibility to make that as uh, as inoffensive as, as humanly possible. Um, so you know we the, the local people who live there are, are absolutely fundamental, but by local people I also talk about you know the wider communities of North and West London, um, and creating a place where they want to come and, and they want to hang out. You know, most development you know large scale development in our city has taken place east west for the last fifty years. You know, and that's down to where the transport communications have primarily been. Um, so heading north like this and building on the scale that we're talking about here, with very large uh, an office community as part of it, um, is a departure for that part of London. And so you can take your different views, is it risk or is it opportunity? Um, personally, I see it as a massive opportunity. And um, I'm I'm pretty confident that we can do it. But Does it keep me awake at night now and again? Yeah, a little bit.
2: Yeah. How about you, Dan? Um, Beyond the pragmatics of running a practice in sort of uh, uncertain times. um,
0: Is that a Brexit reference?
2: No, no. I just think that there's a lot above and beyond uh, Brexit in terms of uncertainty in the world as a whole. Um, I think what keeps my head spinning at night, I suppose, is how do you keep talent in your practice and how do you keep the vitality of that talent going in your practice? Um, I think if you were to ask any architect why they work in a particular location, Above and beyond the fact that, you know, it's the way they earn their living. It's about the projects they get involved with. And I think the key, and that's probably what keeps my head spinning at night again, is how do you get those interesting projects through the door in order to keep your staff engaged and keep them wanting to perform their best for you? That's probably the biggest challenge I would say that we have going forward above and as I said, above and beyond the pragmatics of of running a practice. But yeah.
0: Well, I'll tell you what keeps me up at night. Part of it is how do I get people to to move this debate and conversation forward so I'm not sitting here with you in twenty years saying, Why didn't we ever change those methods of construction? And why didn't we prevent the climate catastrophe? And remember when London wasn't underwater? <laughs> so Uh, So thank you for helping me to have those conversations today and being so open in in addressing the kind of big challenges.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. You It's been terrific. Thanks very much.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TCMurray.